Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Okay, well, good, good evening, everybody. Um, welcome to the uh, University of Bath. For those of you who come uh, from outside the university today, a big welcome to the university. I'm Nick Pierce. I'm the director of the Institute for Policy Research, your host this evening. Um, and we could have sold this venue out many times over, such was the interest in this evening's event. Um, today, as people will know, the government has published its one-clause bill um, responding to the Supreme Court's ruling on Tuesday that um, it could not exercise the royal prerogative to trigger Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty to withdraw the United Kingdom from the European Union, that only Parliament uh, could authorise such an action. And so Parliament next week uh, will give a second reading to this one-clause bill, and it is called uh, an, it's an Article 50 bill. Article 50 is in the title. Um, and tonight we have the author of Article 50 here uh, to speak to you, Lord Kerr, John Kerr. And it's a great privilege to have uh, Lord Kerr with us. He was the Permanent Secretary at the Foreign Office, so the country's chief diplomat, if you like, uh, but also our ambassador to the European Union and our ambassador at another stage in his career to Washington, to the, to the US. So when we think about contemporary politics of Trump and Brexit, uh, debates over Article 50, no better person to address us on these issues than Lord Kerr. Um, uh, so Lord Kerr, we're very grateful to have you here, and we very much look forward to hearing what you have to say. Welcome. Thank you very much, Nick. It's, uh, it's a huge honour to be here, uh, to be invited by the IPR, which uh, is, uh, has a huge reputation around the country. It's also a huge surprise to be invited because, as Nick says, I was a diplomat, and uh, diplomats are well known to be uh, incredibly idle and discreet. Uh, the, when I was going to be ambassador to Washington, I research some of my predecessors, starting with the first, George Hammond, in uh, the 18th century. Uh, if you look in the files of the Foreign Office, uh, you can find a note sent by Pitt the Younger to uh, Grenville, his Secretary of State, saying, we didn't hear from Hammond last year. <laughs> if, if we don't hear from him this year, let's send him a note. <laughs> that, that, that's the diligence of diplomats, Dis discretion of diplomats. I found a French ambassador in, uh, a century ago who wrote marvellous memoirs of being French ambassador in Washington uh, in the time of uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who was the exact opposite of uh, the Frenchman. The Frenchman was Jules Jusserand, who I see as sort of wing, starched collar and prince nez, uh, very precise, he describes walking up by the Potomac with the president, who was a great uh, open-air, uh, huge man and very active, uh, walking by the Potomac on a hot summer day, and Roosevelt says, uh, let's um, have a swim, and takes off his clothes and jumps in the river. And the Frenchman says in his memoir, uh, I was not quite clear what to do. Uh, I could not insult the president but there might be ladies present. So I took off my clothes, but I kept on my gloves. <laughs> uh, 
I've decided to take off my gloves tonight, so uh, I will try to be a little indiscreet, but every now and again you may feel that the, the gloves come back on again. Uh, uh, let, let me start with uh, a declaration of interest, as, uh, as you have to do in the House of Lords. I was the Foreign Office Undersecretary to Mrs. Thatcher. I was the uh, Brussels negotiator for uh, uh, John Major and, and Margaret Thatcher. I was uh, Washington Ambassador for John Major. I was Permanent Secretary to Tony Blair and uh, in his first term before the Iraq mistake. Nothing to do with me, God. Uh, so I had the good fortune to hold these jobs in what was a golden period. In uh, Brussels, the two policies most important to us were high on the EU agenda. The single market, which we now want to leave, was a uh, Tory uh, policy, supported after some hesitation by Labour. It was a Margaret Thatcher policy. It was being pressed in, in Brussels by Arthur Cofield, the Conservative uh, Commissioner who preceded Christopher Tugendhat of this university. The, uh, uh, followed Christopher Tugendhat. The second policy which we were keeping high at the top of the agenda and which was going well was the policy of, of enlargement to the East as the uh, Berlin Wall came down. Uh, a Tory policy introduced by uh, John Major, who sold it to the European Council in Edinburgh in 1992, a Tory policy that was wholeheartedly supported by the Labour Party from the start, and which uh, led to our being seen throughout Central Europe at the time as their leading advocate, ally and mentor, assisting their process into the European Union. Uh, in London, uh, well, in Washington first, uh, I found that uh, President Clinton paid much more attention to British views uh, than uh, they probably deserved because he felt that if he struck a deal with the British, the British could probably deliver it in Brussels and have the then uh, uh, 12, then 15 uh, member states united behind it. So in London, uh, I thought the dispute between the Blue Sea diplomacy advocates in the Foreign Office and the uh, advocates of uh, involving ourselves deeply in Europe, I thought that dispute, which ran uh, throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s, I thought it was dead by the 90s, by the time I was Permanent Secretary. I thought that the whole foreign policy establishment in Britain understood that it wasn't a choice, that we were stronger in Washington because we were seen to be strong in Brussels, and stronger in Brussels because we were seen to be strong in Washington. Uh, I, uh, I think we cut more ice in Tokyo and Canberra because we were seen to be strong in, in Brussels and in Washington. It, the, the things were mutually reinforcing. And in the country at large, uh, British membership of the European Union in this period, I'm talking about my golden age, uh, in the country at large, 
our membership wasn't seriously questioned at all. When John Major came back after signing the Maastricht Treaty, he was hailed in the, in the uh, Daily Telegraph on the front page uh, as having procured a triumph. The headline was Game, Set and Match, and the piece was written by a very brilliant young uh, journalist in Brussels called Boris Johnson. <laughs> the, uh, when I was permanent representative, I was able to do all sorts of useful things on the advice of the seven senior Brits in the commission, including the Secretary-General. Uh, the French had four, the Germans had four, the British had seven, which was quite useful. This was the period when the City of London was becoming ever more dominant as the market for trading, even in Euro-denominated securities, especially in Euro-denominated securities, even though we did not uh, join the Euro. This was the period when the Commission were breaking the airline national flag carrier cartels and budget airlines were taking off, enabling young people to get, uh, get about in the European continent in a way they hadn't been able to afford to do before. This was the era of the Channel Tunnel opening. Uh, I think we did feel, we British did feel European at the time, and we didn't feel any less British for being European, and we didn't feel that that being European in any way prevented us uh, having a global role. Indeed, I think we thought, and I think we were right, that it enhanced our global role. So where did it all go wrong? That's a subject for another day. And uh, all sorts of deep-rooted causes, 9-11, Iraq and Afghanistan, Islamic extremism and terrorism, migration and the perception here, as in America, that... Uh, migrant workers steal our jobs, a perception which the economists tell us is quite wrong. Global financial crisis, the perception that bankers walked away, the people paid. The rise of China, the perception that the rules-based international system was started to work against us. And the liberal establishments who supported it were untrustworthy or incompetent or both. Uh, these phenomena aren't just British phenomena, it's pretty general. Hence, uh, Marie Le Pen... <coughs> Hence, uh, Mr. Grillo in Italy, Mr. Wilders in the Netherlands, and, and hence Brexit here. For Brexit had other, other causes as well, uh, more particular to the British. The question on the uh, exam paper is, will the divorce be damaging? Yes, uh, I'm afraid my answer is that it will be damaging, uh, certainly politically, for the reason I've hinted at already, and at least for quite a considerable time, economically. Uh, it'll be damaging internationally, and uh, uh, I think it'll be damaging domestically in the sense that the risks to the 1707 union with the Scots uh, will clearly go on rising. Uh, the bravado of Mrs. May's Lancaster House speech last week uh, was striking and in a way admirable. She's been dealt a very difficult hand and she certainly puts a bold face on it, but I found it a little over-optimistic. I have three particular conceptual problems with the picture she painted. First, we weren't wrong when we thought being strong in Europe made us stronger in the wider world, that we didn't have to choose between the two strategies. Why did our Commonwealth and transatlantic friends 
try very hard to persuade us before the referendum that we should remain. Uh, it wasn't uh, because they love us, though maybe some of them do. It was because they thought their interests were best advanced by having a powerful advocate for common values, commonwealth values, uh, in, uh, in Brussels. They thought we would be more useful to them, they thought we would be more important to them if we stayed in the European Union. And uh, I think they were probably right. And I think they will now listen to us less now that we are out or going out rather than in. So that's conceptual problem one. Second problem, I can't for the life of me see why leaving the EU single market should increase our trading opportunities in the wider world. If the Germans sell five times as much to China as we do, and they do, it can't be EU membership that's holding us back. There must be some other factor explaining the, uh, the difference. India. When Mrs. May went to India, she found that the biggest blockage to increased trade with India is nothing to do with the EU. It's our restrictions on immigration from India, which are deeply resented uh, in India. And why should the uh, wider world be uh, keener on opening their markets to us when our market for them is shrinking from 500 million to 65 million? when we are no longer the landing point, the jumping off point for uh, their access to the whole European market. I, of course, agree that when we leave the European market, which currently takes 45% of our exports, we'll have to try a lot harder elsewhere. But I think the challenge elsewhere will be bigger and the task harder, not smaller and easier, as Mrs May implied. Third, uh, still on trade, I've never understood uh, Boris Johnson's cake policy, that one can have one's cake and eat it. Mrs. May says she wants the greatest possible access to the single market, though we will not be members and we won't recognise its rulemaking and we won't recognise its umpire, the ECJ. She says that we will leave the common external tariff, we will leave the common commercial policy, but we might, in certain sectors... She mentioned cars and lorries and financial services, where I think she was talking about the single market. We might be ready to become associate members of the customs union. There are no associate members of any customs union I know of. This is an entirely new concept, and I'm not quite sure how it works. Cars and lorries, if, we, if they were inside the customs union, that sector, cars and lorries would have to be built respecting the regulations that were laid down by Brussels and whether they respected them or not be a matter to be decided by the jurisdiction of the ECJ, uh, which uh, we can't accept. Moreover, why should other uh, EU countries allow us to cherry-pick? Why do we pick cars and, and uh, aircraft, he mentioned as well, and uh, financial services? because these are the areas where we have the comparative advantage. We, we are saying that for, for the things we do best, we want to be in. 
But for the things you do best, oh, no, 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 we're going to be out. Uh, I, uh, I'm not sure that works. There are plenty of other EU member states who would like to play host to the next Nissan production line or the next Airbus wing building factory. Frankfurt, Paris and Milan want the banking and financial services business, though actually I think most of it will go to New York. I'm not clear why Mrs May thinks we can have our cake and eat it and why she thinks that's negotiable. I also wonder whether she studied GATT Article 24 very closely. You are, I know, in a great university like Bath, everybody has studied GATT Article 24 very closely. So I have absolutely no need to uh, remind you, and therefore in a Ciceronian way I won't remind you, that it is about the basic principle that uh, tariffs, quotas and other restrictions have to be minimised and generalised, and if you have an exception that is not generalised, uh, for a particular partnership, uh, in such a partnership, border taxes and restrictions have to be lifted for substantially all trade. Now, that is not what Mrs May was talking about at Lancaster House. It clearly wasn't uh, substantially all trade. Uh, I, uh, on the face of it, I think, what we seem to be saying, maybe the white paper will spell it out more clearly, but what we seem to be saying at Langster House uh, is something that would be, uh, get it, illegal, I think. Uh, what is going to happen when uh, our notification goes in, which it certainly will, uh, the High Court and Supreme Court rulings saying that Parliament must vote before the letter is written, were of huge constitutional significance, but are absolutely irrelevant to what is going to happen in uh, Parliament. There is no doubt that the government's bill will pass. Uh, they've been required to put forward the bill. I don't know why they didn't do it uh, back in uh, September. They should have... Uh, getting involved in the attempt to use prerogative powers and then being told you hadn't got the powers was a, uh, a, a mistake. But the bill will pass in both houses. So the Brussels negotiation will start. I've been asked whether it will be amicable, this divorce. In the end, maybe, but when the negotiation starts, they will start with a bang and they will be very, very hostile. Uh, the first negotiation won't be on anything that Mrs. May spoke about at Lancaster House. Article 50 is about withdrawal. Article 50 is about paying the bills, dividing the property. Article 50 is a, is a simple divorce. It's nothing about uh, uh, the future relationship with the country that's left. Uh, it's a zero-sum negotiation. It's a money negotiation. All money negotiations are bad-tempered, not just because national treasuries are in the lead all round. <coughs> you know, national treasuries are famously bad-tempered. I used to work in one. I, uh, the Commission are saying that they will not discuss anything else with us until we have settled with them on uh, what Article 50 is about, which is the money negotiation. Now, I don't believe that Commission position will hold, uh, uh, but there's no doubt that we will have to start by talking about what the article's about, the financial terms of departure. 
And the Commission, according to the press, are going to present us with a bill for 50 to 60 billion euros. Those are what we pay to leave. Uh, made up, apparently, of our share of unspent but outstanding past budget commitments, our share of promised commitments in the present budget cycle, which is 2014 to 2020, and our share of future pension liabilities. Uh, I, uh, I, I don't know if, if what is the breakdown between these elements. I don't know whether Mrs May's silence uh, in Lancaster House about all this was tactical, but uh, what she did say was on leaving we would no longer have to pay huge sums. She talked about how we might be prepared to make a contribution to the future funding of programmes which we wanted to take part in. Uh, I, I think that's tactlessly put, but an important point. It will be for the European Union to decide what programmes we take, may take part in. But it seems to me uh, probable that there are programmes, including the one most important to this university, Horizon 2020, and its successes. There are, there are programmes which uh, we will be invited to take part in, and of course we will have to pay a contribution when we do so. I don't think the Commission um, position is likely to hold in this negotiation. The issue of the rebate clearly arises as our, uh, as our take from the EU budget falls, so uh, the rebate we're due uh, will rise. So I don't think the negotiation will end at 60 billion. I have no idea where it will end. I think it will take some time. I think it will be very nasty. That's round one, not amicable at all. But it won't be just about money because the drafters of Article 50 uh, included a requirement for the divorce proceedings to take account of the framework for the future relationship between the EU and the seceding state. I can't recall what form the drafters thought that framework would take, whether it would be another treaty text or international agreement, European Council conclusions text, I have no idea. Uh, but plainly, it will have to exist, because if it doesn't exist, the Article 50 uh, agreement will be legally vulnerable, because they couldn't have taken account of it if it didn't exist. Uh, if I were back in my, one of my old Whitehall jobs, I would be arguing that we should be submitting a draft of that framework now. What is the, the framework? What is, what is going to be the future institutional arrangement between a Britain outside the European Union and the European Union. I would say the sort of pillars that we should be constructing now are a foreign policy pillar. Uh, there will be a common interest in close foreign policy cooperation. There should be an interior ministry pillar, a common interest in fighting terrorism and international crime and drug running and people trafficking. There should be a, a, a pillar dealing with environmental and energy policy. <coughs> There should be something about intelligence exchange. I believe we should be drawing, trying to create a structure which ensures that what Mrs May was talking about, our being the closest friend and partner when we left, neighbour, uh, that is reflected in, in arrangements whereby we are in the next room even if we're not in the council room when we're not in the council room. We won't have a vote, but we will <coughs> be consulted, and we would be consulting. I see us consulting our European friends 
on what we would be saying in the Security Council, how we would be voting in the European Council, just as we do now. I see a common interest in, in that. Uh, I, uh, I, I think there might be a defence pillar uh, to my structure. Certainly the more, f um, the more substance we can get into the structure and the more positive we can be in our prescriptions for the structure, the better the atmosphere of the negotiation and the less the risk that it will all be poisoned by the fight about money and the resentment at restrictions on, uh, on travel. I would also make clear, of course, straight away, now, voluntarily, I would say that we, the British, are not going to be in the business of rounding up and expelling fellow EU citizens who are legitimately here today. We never would. We're not that kind of country. So why don't we say so as a unilateral move? It, Mrs May has never said she can't make a unilateral move because it's negotiating capital. But others in her government have, and I think that's shaming. People are not negotiating capital. And if we made this move, I am confident that all around Europe, uh, people would follow suit. This should not be part of the negotiation. I think she should try very hard to accentuate the positive, and that's why I think a prescription for the framework is really required. I would try to appear constructive, particularly because we are not very popular in Brussels at the moment. <laughs> we, we were already not very popular uh, before the, uh, the referendum. It, it, we had rather forgotten about solidarity, uh, which is there in the treaty, but wasn't really there in our practice in recent years. It was possibly not very clever of Mr. Osborne to refuse to pay even a token part in any of the <coughs> EU bailouts for southern European countries in trouble and to help Ireland only bilaterally, ostentatiously only bilaterally and not as part of the EU bailout for the Irish. And I don't think it was necessarily very clever of Mr Cameron to refuse to take even a token number of Syrian refugees flooding into Greece and Italy. I don't think it was necessarily clever of Mr Cameron to insult Mr Juncker I don't think it was clever of Mr. Haig to leave it to the French and the Germans to try to secure a ceasefire and withdrawal in the Donbass. I certainly wasn't very clever more recently of Mr. Johnson to stay away from the foreign minister's discussion of how to handle uh, Trump's election uh, and from the Paris conference and the Middle East peace conference. I... Uh, um, Bravado can, can, can grate a bit abroad. Uh, and the fact is that our values and policies are closer to European views than to Trump's tweets. Europe feels threatened by Putin. Europe feels thrown by Trump. Uh, it's a moment for some solidarity. I thought Mrs. Merkel's message to Trump on election was magnificent and uh, deserves uh, study. Uh, I think she has so far been getting that more right than we have. If I were advising uh, Mrs May, I would advise her that there are three things she should certainly not do in this negotiation. 
First, I really wouldn't threaten. Uh, her threat is uh, that if we don't get our way, we will simply, this is a quote, change our social and economic model. We regain competitiveness by cutting taxes, regulation and welfare. We'll go the full ultra-liberal Singapore. I think such threats don't win friends. And I don't think such threats are credible. Uh, given current pressures on the National Health Service, for example, given Mrs May's own frequently expressed wish to do more for people who are just about managing, and given in the same speech she talked about employee rights, industrial policy, and a fairer society, I think that's probably the true Mrs May. And I think probably her European Council counterparts think that's the true Mrs May. So I don't think the idea of our going uh, ultra-liberal, cutting taxes, cutting welfare, to uh, regain competitiveness is at all credible, and I think she should stop it. Second, I definitely wouldn't play the defence card, which she has not played. I wouldn't. Uh, mutual security isn't a transactional matter, uh, Pache, Mr Trump. NATO isn't obsolete. Extended deterrence isn't meaningless. And if deployments of British forces to Estonia are required in the alliance interest, that requirement won't change with Brexit. And to imply that there's a link, that UK support for our NATO allies is in some way dependent on their giving us a good deal in this negotiation would be a disastrous mistake, damaging to us, damaging to the alliance. Uh, third, and most relevant today as she flies to America, uh, I wouldn't suck up to President Trump. <laughs> yes, of course, the relationship with Washington matters enormously, but we need to make, go on making clear to him and the world and our European friends that we don't agree with him about Putin, about the UN, about NATO, about global warming, about Palestine, about torture, or about the EU. He wants to break it up. It is said, I don't know if this is true, that when uh, the President of the European Council, Donald Tusk, rang him to congratulate him on winning the election, he replied by saying, tell me, who will be next out of the door after the Brits? A, a extraordinary uh, approach. Uh, from before the Treaty of Rome was signed, uh, while John Money was still working for the British government, for the American government, uh, generations of American diplomats have seen an interest in a more united, coherent, stronger <coughs> Europe. And here we have somebody in the White House who genuinely believes that it would be good if the European uh, Union were to break up. I think. One of the best features of Mrs May's speech at Lancaster House was her insistence that we really don't think that, that as we leave, we don't want the club to, to break up. It's a, a massive market for us. It would be a disaster for us economically if it broke up. It would also be a political disaster. The only winner would be Putin. Uh, our negotiation will, with the, our European Union partners will go better the more we make that clear, distancing ourselves 
from Trump and his tweets. And I wouldn't be all that keen to be head of the line for a trade deal with a president whose uh, slogan is America First, who said in his inaugural speech that protection will lead to prosperity and strength. Protectionists usually pretend to be free traders. I'm not going to speak French at this point. The, the, uh, it is very, very rare to have a, a declared protectionist in power. But we have, here we have somebody whose inaugural speech said he's a protectionist. He's not a free trader. Uh, the fiercest argument I witnessed between uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan was about American sanctions on British engineering companies who had been selling goods to Russia, Russian pipeline technology. Uh, they were sanctioned, unable to sell anything in the United States. Thought Mrs. Thatcher was hopping mad. It was a marvellous row. By comparison with Ronald Reagan, uh, by comparison with, with, with Trump, Ronald Reagan was a liberal free trader. I, I, uh, I see he wants the 35% tariff on imported BMWs. Uh, he's told Mrs. Merkel that. I, uh, she was probably too polite to tell him that the biggest car exporter from the United States is BMW from their enormous factory in South Carolina. Uh, that's fine. He's not going to bother that. Border taxes, tariff, these things are not good for you. You may protect a bit of, the, of, of a declining industry for a bit, but it's a bad idea. And yet... Uh, uh, that's what he seems to believe. His, uh, his U.S. trade representative is Robert Lighthizer, who was deputy uh, USTR at the time of the sanctions on Rolls-Royce and other British companies, which so infuriated Mrs. Thatcher. I see the clock being turned back. I've, I've, um, I would therefore avoid being seen to be too close to Mr. Trump, I also genuinely believe that it would be un, unwise to be close to Mr. Trump. I'm recommending this not just because I think it will, uh, it is best for the, our EU negotiation, it's best for our standing in the world. When he doesn't support values which we do support, we need to make that <coughs> absolutely clear. I, uh, I've explained why uh, I think we're likely to uh, lose economically as well as politically by leaving the EU. But the clincher for me as a negotiator rather than an economist is that I believe it will all take much longer than most people realise. I believe we face a decade of uncertainty and disruption. Uh, let me bore you for a, a little longer by trying to explain the sequence. The Article 50 negotiation has a cut-off after two years. And I think uh, two years is ample time for the money negotiation and, I hope, for agreement on a good framework for the future relationship. Uh, after two years, unless there's an extension, you're out with or without a deal. That's what the article says. Uh, What will you have achieved on trade in that period? 
you will certainly not have achieved any free trade agreement. Certainly not the free trade agreement that Mrs. May was sketching out at Lancaster House, where we pick and choose. We're in for some things, uh, out for other things. Uh, it'll take longer. It might take one year or two years longer to get a free trade agreement. You then have to allow another two years for national ratification, which in some cases uh, may require a referendum. Uh, negotiating the EU's agreement with Canada took seven years and then nearly came unstuck in the Parliament of Wallonia, one of the constituent parts of, uh, of Belgium. The agreement with Ukraine was rejected in a referendum in uh, the Netherlands. And treaties, EU treaties don't come into force until everybody has, has ratified them. Uh, and uh, the more we uh, demand a bespoke deal, uh, the uh, longer everything will take. Uh, we have made clear that we don't want the Canadian deal, we don't want the Ukraine deal, we don't want the Norway deal, we don't want the Turkey deal, we want this special deal which we are uh, crafting ourselves, where we are in for bits and out for... Uh, that's very difficult to negotiate in Brussels. We're not fitting into any standard template and remember, the Brussels position has to be decided by the 27th. So negotiating with the EU, uh, the Americans are always complaining, it's a very laborious process because the Commission can't move very far from the mandate given them by the Council without the Council being consulted again, which in many cases will mean the Council going back to capitals and um, in some cases Parliament's being consulted. So uh, not taking an off-the-shelf arrangement, but uh, insisting on drafting from scratch a new kind of free trade agreement, as well as associate membership of the customs union. These are, this will take, take time. So I say you may in two years do Article 50 and the framework, but you will not have done trade and not have had trade ratified for five or six years. Minimum. Second, yes, you can bridge gaps with a transition agreement, or as Mrs. May preferred, a uh, implementation agreement. But um, I think implementation agreements are the most difficult of all. Uh, you are building a bridge, but you don't know yet where it's going to land on the other side of the river. It's a very difficult thing to do, conceptually. As a negotiator, I would never have conceded anything for an interim deal or a transitional deal which I wasn't prepared to see in the permanent deal. Because, as the French say, rien ne dure que le provisoire. Nothing lasts longer than the temporary. So you would be crazy to concede for an interim uh, agreement something which you would then have to deny in the permanent agreement. It follows that permanent agreements are easier to negotiate than interim agreements. Interim agreements in the uh, EU up to now, they're, they're frequent, but they cover the ratification period. You agree uh, the, the future agreement. Uh, you, it then goes back to capital to be ratified, 
And you have a provisional application agreement which says that let's assume everybody is going to uh, approve this and we'll start applying it now in advance. And people do uh, uh, agree to that. But that comes after you've uh, reached agreement on the permanent agreement. So I'm not sure that, that uh, a, a transition agreement is the way round this, squaring this circle of how long it all takes. Uh, thirdly, uh, the EU has about 50, a little more than 50 uh, trade agreements with third countries. Uh, they will all have to be renegotiated to take account of our secession, to take account of the fact the EU uh, market has shrunk. They, uh, we cannot be sure of what share we will get uh, and we cannot be sure of inheriting uh, the uh, current terms. Uh, that will take uh, a lot of energy, not necessarily a lot of time because these negotiations can all take place in, in parallel, but it will be a very big task. Uh, fourthly, we still can't become full WTO members until we have not only left the European <coughs> Union but have submitted and had accepted our proposed uh, WTO schedules, the trade regime we envisage uh, Obiet Orbit. Uh, and it has to be accepted unanimously by all 167 WTO members. <sighs> The schedules will have to reflect the outcome of the negotiation with the EU. So we can't get started on the operation with the WTO until we've completed the operation with the EU. Getting into the WTO took the Russians 19 years and the Chinese 15. Uh, we will actually get in very, very much faster than that. Uh, but the need for unanimity among all WTO members creates uh, uh, plenty of opportunities for blackmail by the, uh, the unfriendly or the, those who, uh, who think we're, uh, uh, our hand is weak, as it would be. Uh, only when our multilateral schedules with individual trading partners, uh, our multilateral schedules have, are, are out there, have been seen, have been accepted, Will most individual trading partners be prepared to cut bilateral deals with us? Why should they offer us an exchange of concessions before they know what concessions we'll be offering everybody, all WTO members? So uh, most of them won't. Trade negotiation is an old-fashioned arm wrestling business. It's pure mercantilism. It's it, it tends to take a while, uh, and it's not run on sentiment. Now, the United States may be an exception. The United States may be uh, prepared to move very fast once we've left the European Union. Uh, why? Well, if we look at the negotiation between the EU and, and the United States over TTIP, the planned transatlantic trade and investment uh, programme, uh, one can see what the Americans were looking for from the Brits. And uh, primarily it was pharmaceuticals. 
The National Health Service is such a big buyer that prices are very low and American manufacturers don't like that. It was also healthcare companies wanted to pick up more bits of the, uh, of the uh, National Health Service. And then, of course, it was the huge and powerful American agricultural lobby which really dislikes the European Union's tariffs and quotas as well as the CAP subsidies. Uh, I, I know these three elements would certainly be in Trump's brief. Uh, I don't know what would be in Mrs. May's brief, because I don't know, uh, she hasn't said, what is her future policy for supporting agriculture, for example. I don't know whether she intends to go uh, with uh, the liberal economists like Patrick Minford and stop all agricultural support. Uh, I, if she abolishes uh, tariffs and quotas, uh, we can forget growing cereals in Britain because the prairies, Canada and America, uh, uh, will grow them much, much cheaper. Prices go down in the shops, excellent, but I don't know what happens to the farms. The Scots and the Welsh might worry a bit about the beef and the lamb. Uh, lots of us might worry a bit about the hormones in the beef or the chemicals in which the chickens are washed. All these points are very boring. They've been negotiated on our behalf by the Commission. They have been sticking points between the Americans and the Commission. The Americans are taking the EU to, to court over a uh, ban on hormones in beef. I, we don't know what our position would be, but an, a, a free trade agreement with the Americans would uh, m make major changes to British society. There's no doubt about that. So uh, I say, uh, beware. Uh, this is, in principle, it's an excellent idea to have a, a successor trade arrangement with the Americans. And in some areas, it might be liberal. But look to the UK advantage and be clear with the British people about what it is you're doing. Uh, anyway, it, 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 it's not going to be agreed this week. It's not going to be agreed until we've left the European Union. There's plenty of time for these debates. My key point here, and when describing all these five stages, which sum to about 10 years, is that all this will take much longer than is realized. It looks to me like a decade of uncertainty, and uncertainty is the last thing that, that, uh, that business wants. So it seems to me to follow that economic growth will be lower than it would otherwise have been, and not say necessarily go down, but it will be lower than it would otherwise have been because of the uncertainties created by Brexit. I'm pretty confident about that. I'm not confident about my skills as an economist in, in, in uh, looking long term. And in the end, maybe uh, it would be the sunlit uplands. My point is they're a long, long way off. I, I have one, other, one more thing I'd like to try and do. Uh, I'd like to try and be rather daring and uh, predict what is actually going to happen in this two-year negotiation with the European Union. I see uh, five scenarios. Scenario one, all goes well. We leave, <laughs> we leave on time, March 2019, with... Uh, a done deal on the money, 
which is what Article 50 is about, and a substantive framework agreement which permits real progress on the uh, trade negotiation. And we have sufficient progress to make it possible to do an implementation agreement, a transitional agreement, to cover the gap before the trade deal is completed and then ratified. I'd say the probability of this sunny scenario is about 25%. These probabilities are completely spurious. <laughs> Second uh, scenario. Uh, we leave in uh, 2019 with only the Article 50 money deal and a thin framework agreement. And therefore, a lot more work still to do on trade and therefore a weak or no transition agreement. Uh, a bad deal for business. Probability a bit higher, possibly 30%. Uh, third, it goes into extra time, as the article permits, if all parties agree. Uh, and I can envisage scenarios in which it, it might go into extra time. Probability, say 10%. Fourth, uh, there's no dead, there's deadlock on money, uh, and therefore there's no deal at all. Nothing is agreed. Two years ends, and we're out. Uh, two years ends with us presumably in court, uh, recourse to law to try to settle the financial dispute. It certainly ends with us in, uh, in, in legal chaos and economic disruption. Uh, nothing has been put in place to replace what we've left. Uh, I would say the probability is quite high. Uh, this is um, 25%, we're about maybe 30 Okay, now the, the, the keen mathematicians among you <laughs> may have noticed that my percentages don't sum to 100. Uh, so, if you insist, I will relaxingly concede that there is a fifth scenario. I did say five at the start. Scenario five looks a bit like this. By 2019, UK public opinion might have changed having worked out that we can't have our cake and eat it, that we were told a pack of lies, having looked into the abyss, uh, we could draw back. Legally, you can withdraw an Article 15 uh, notification. She could write another letter in March 2019 saying, oh, by the way, uh, forget that one I wrote you <laughs> There would then be a, a, a political question. Legally, we'd be absolutely entitled to do that. Politically, it would be up to the others to decide uh, whether they'd had enough of us and they'd rather we just fell out. I, uh, uh, I think that uh, that would not be the conclusion. I think there would be a political price of some kind to pay for having wasted so much time and energy. But I, I, I do not think we could legally be expelled. The article in question, the treaty, is called the Voluntary Withdrawal Article. Uh, 
how plausible is this uh, scenario? Uh, well, I have absolutely no idea. I can't, I can't myself see how it works in uh, the domestic politics of this country. Uh, but two years is a long time in politics. Uh, the most interesting amendments that we've put forward in Parliament in the next few weeks to the government's bill will be those asking for interim reports on the negotiation. If the government only reports when the deal is done, then, of course, uh, Parliament will approve the deal however bad it is because the alternative would be no deal. It would be Hobson's choice at the end of the day. So the most interesting amendments will be ones that try to produce interim reports on how the negotiation is proceeding with a view to having uh, the possibility, say in, in autumn 2018, of uh, looking at the sort of deal the government seemed to think they're going to get, while one still has the option of saying, go back and try harder, that's not very good, or even conceivably of saying, hey, shall we call the whole thing off? Was this a, a good idea or not? Which would, of course, mean a general election or a second referendum. It would mean uh, a, a huge political upheaval. Uh, but uh, it's not inconceivable. That's the fifth scenario. The, those who are both brilliant mathematicians and very attentive will be able to work out what probability I assign to uh, scenario five. But I think that's enough speculation from me. Thank you very much for hearing me out.